Released in September 2015, this Agile Life, episode 98, Automate, Automate. The software industry transforms more and more every day. Agile methods are quickly replacing traditional ones. The question is, are you agile enough? This podcast is devoted to agile and lean software development. Time to welcome your agile coaches on This Agile Life. Hello, everyone, and welcome to This Agile Life, a podcast about what it is like to be agile in the real world. My name is Jason Tice, The Agile Factor on Twitter, and I have a bunch of friends tonight. We are at Agile Link in St. Louis, Missouri. It's August 2015, and we're having just a podcast here with some people that are at the user group. So we have a bunch of topics. Let's do a lightning round of introductions. So who are you? And tell us why you're here. I am Melanie, and I'm here because Jason made me. (laughs) (laughs) Well played. I'm Tony, and I'm here to learn more about Agile. I'm Rob, and I'm here to hone my Agile skills myself. I'm Chris. I like lean. I'm Joe, and I'm here because Jason is just charismatic, (laughs) and he makes you want to be in the room. Uh, I'm Jim, because uh, uh, these meetings are always fun, and I want to become a better Agile uh, developer. And most importantly, Craig Buchek is here, one of our other hosts from The Agile Life. So, Craig, tell us about yourself. How are you doing today? Uh, doing good. Uh, it's good to see you in person for a change. Uh, I don't believe that I am the most important person in this room, though. <laughs> and one more person has joined us. And I'm Debbie. I'm here to learn. Okay. So what we've done tonight, we have thrown a large number of post-its on the table here that we'll take a picture of so you guys can see if you're listening, uh, that have a variety of topics. And so kind of like Lean Coffee style, is there anyone here at the table who will volunteer they have never been to a Lean Coffee? I have not. Tony has never been to the so but Tony, you're up. Tony gets to pick our first topic that we are going to talk about for about five minutes. So, And then after Tony picks, he can hand it off to somebody else. So we got a couple things here. Pick something. I want to go with automated testing. Okay, automated testing. So I will share. I put that one in there. And um, actually, my colleague Melanie is here. She just shared her experience report from the uh, Agile 2015 conference that was about some automated testing. So Melanie, can you tell us your thoughts on automated testing? Does anybody Autom- else feel that the fix is in and that I'm- just mysteriously showed up? Yeah. That's yeah. Right. Thanks, Jason. <laughs> um, so automation testing is good. What did you ask me? I said, tell us. So tell us what you talked about in, in your paper. Like, so I talked listen. about um, some of the benefits of automated testing. Uh, talked about um, how we now have a good testing pyramid. So a lot of people say that for a best testing practice, you know, you need to have a pyramid that has all your unit tests, you know, as the base of the pyramid. So you have a lot of unit tests. And then as you go up the pyramid, the final tip should be your manual testing. Okay. So how we've gotten to achieve that. So I'm going to ask you guys, who's got a question for Melanie? Okay. So, okay good. Oh, boy. Yeah, I was, um, how long did it take to go from where you had like a crappy pyramid to what you felt was a good pyramid? Um, so it, it actually didn't take that long. Um, I think that I think that the developers were really excited about, and this is something that they really wanted to do, and it didn't take that long. Um, I want to say no more than a year, unless you think maybe a year's a long time, but a year. But the project, the, uh, the project started in like 2000 and... Um, 
2003, I think, or something like that. And they started doing automation in 2007. And how much can we talk about the project? Because that thing is just awesome. You can. I mean, that was, that was, that was given at the Agile conference, so it's, it's out there. Yeah. So you, don't bury the lead. I mean, nuclear <laughs> weapon detonation detection, come on. It's the defeat of weapons of mass destruction. Yes, and that's sexy. So in addition to automated unit tests, it detects nuclear bombs. That's awesome. And chemical. Yeah, and I think the key thing that I that I know I, I when I when I read your paper that I really liked was how a challenge I know a lot of people have is okay, I want to start writing automated tests, but they don't cover my whole code base. So really I know in the paper you mentioned that we just started and then eventually you, you caught up. Yeah. So um, yeah, so Craig. So you really want to test mostly test the things that are going to change. The things that you're not gonna mess with that code. You're not going to break those things usually because you didn't touch them. So the idea is, as she talked about, you you write tests as you go. So if I am in this file, I'm going to write a test for this file, and that's that's how you build. So you basically or if build, I'm changing this file, right? If if I'm changing this file, I'm going to write tests for this file. The hard part of that is I'm have to figure out what it was supposed to do based on what it does in the current code, which may have bugs in it. So you guys, did, did you do TDD, test-driven development, or? Yeah, they do that now, yes. Okay. Yep. All right, what else about automated testing? I got a crazy question. I know we've talked about this on the podcast before, Craig, but I'd like to ask these guys, um, guys and gals, what, what do you guys all think about the idea of having a magical percentage of testing? So like you need to have 80% of your code under unit test or what do you guys think? I mean, I, Melly, I don't think you, did you guys have that on your team? No, so that, I think I actually had somebody come up to me afterwards and kind of ask me that question. And it's for us, it's really the acceptance criteria has been, so we, whatever the acceptance criteria is, that's what gets automated from, a, from, from the user acceptance test perspective. Right, so Does that make sense? So that's really not, it's not a code coverage. So I thought you were talking about like code coverage. So there's not a code coverage, but. Well, I guess I was asking about code coverage because I know okay. some people and, and I was I was traveling today and we were talking about like in the airport, like uh -huh. saying that when someone says you have to have 80% covered test coverage of your code, good or bad or risky is maybe what I'll say. I think risky because you can totally game that system and cover cover code with a crappy test that doesn't actually prove any value. And 80% via what measure, right? There are different measurements. Yeah, there's different ways to measure that too, so. I mean, it's nice as a guideline in terms of, hey, how are we doing when we start off just to know if we're covering it, if you're being honest about it. But after a while, it just becomes a meaningless metric. Like some of the other metrics talked about on the podcast, I think there's more value in the trend than the raw number. Okay. So I would say it depends. Um, I've seen some low-level libraries in Ruby that do 100% testing, and it's mutation testing too. So it really does cover what it says it's covering. And, and to have that confidence in your low-level libraries is amazing. But it's, it's a cost-benefit that you have to figure out for yourself. Okay, so the timer has gone off, so Lean Coffee style, we can vote to continue the conversation about testing, or we could pick, Tony will pick someone else to pick a topic. So, shall we vote? Who wants to vote? One, two, three, vote. Okay, we have voted unanimously to move on. And so, you voted not to speak anymore. Right? Okay. 
Melanie doesn't want to talk. So, um, uh, so pull out. So automated testing is done. Okay. So uh, Tony, nominate someone to pick a new topic. I like Joe to pick the topic. Joe picks the topic. I'm so tempted to pick my topic. But that was just one to make. <laughs> no, dude. No, I'm gonna put your talk in there. No, not mine. But we have history of Jason on here just no. because we were joking we're about that one your up, weird yes. background. <laughs> What do we got? So we got automated, automating infrastructure deployments, team struggling a little bit on integrating code reviews into process, how to deal with team that's not motivated, bad retrospectives, flow efficiency. Are you talking about Mihail Chiksen Mihaili's book, Flow, or what are we talking about there? Who wrote the flow? Who, who wrote that card? I did. Melanie wrote the card. So, Melanie, what is flow efficiency? Well, I don't know. I feel like I've been hearing about it a lot lately. Okay. And, we, and I'm on well, a... I thought Joe's going to pick. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so Joe has picked. Joe is bam flow efficiency. So Melanie, yes, tell us about flow efficiency. Well, okay, so I'm on a team that's been doing Kanban for a while, and I feel like the Kanban board has also not changed for a while. And so I've heard some talk about measuring flow efficiency. So I'm kind of just wondering, is our Kanban as efficient as it could be? So just so that's what this is. Sorry, uh, that's not what you expected. Why, why do you think the Kanban board should change? I don't know. Do <laughs> <laughs> well, things have a new process? No, that's not true. The structure? The structure? Okay. Well, yeah, um, like whip limits, I don't know. I mean, are we perfect? Is it perfect? Well, maybe the Kanban well, board is perfect for your current situation. Well, so yeah. the interesting about Kanban, and Jason's going to jump in at any minute, so I'm just... I'm, I'm taking up time until he that. jumps no. in. Yeah. No. But the, inter talk. the interesting thing about ah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> now he's under, under the, the table. desk. We found the secret. <laughs> <laughs> so the interesting thing about uh, Kanban is that it takes you as you are. It, the idea is that it's incremental improvement. Mm -hmm. So the fact that you want to improve is definitely a good thing. Now, but when you say the flow efficiency, that's the one that if there's a flow efficiency metric, that one's new on me. Oh, does anyone know? I mean, there is, there is. So the flow efficiency would be really the amount of time. Well, I'm going to define it. I'm going to define <laughs> the definition. Without talking. Yeah. The timing took 27 seconds of silence. <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah. Where's, where's the well, bar? So, <laughs> so flow, that's really the simple definition, not to, not to go David Anderson on anybody, is really the amount of time you spend actually working on a task. Between, uh, compared to the amount of time you spend, it spends it, it spends in a wait state before oh, it's done. Okay. So there's a common, and actually this happened, not to put you on a spot, Melanie, but we uh, after the Agile conference, we put a picture of a big Kanban board your team uses on yes, Twitter. Yes, we did. And people actually responded on Twitter to say, we think your board's too big. You right. should try to simplify yeah. your process. Right, yeah. you should, yeah they, yeah. yeah, they did. And so this idea, and I have seen this where sometimes you have a big board, and you it allows a team to have too much work in progress. Mm -hmm. And it just sits around there. And so you got to get those whip limits real small so you things flow through. Yeah. And I think a lot of teams simply don't track this. Um, it's it's hard. Maybe what you'd find out is maybe you could redesign your board so things, once you pull a card, it flows through quicker. And yeah. that gives you better predictability because yeah, so like our backlog, our backlog is on the board, you know, and as the, um, we have a designer on our team, as the mock-ups are done, you know, he, he pulls the card, does mock-ups, you know, I don't know. It, 
So I actually I do think things do sit on the board for a long time, but these are things like before they even get pulled into development. So this is kind of like I feel like the I don't know what you call that the products. I don't know if I'm going to say the product side, well, but that might not be right. So the backlog is too big and they get stale. Um. So things get pulled off and things get put on. So why is the designer pulling the? Uh, from the backlog, simply because he's got the design that I thought the developers were supposed to be the ones pulling when they were ready to start. So this is before the developers even start. Okay. So, so, like, so their 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 board defines so their entire process. Yeah, yeah, it goes from yeah, it goes from an idea to well, into master. Yeah. Well, in my experience, I, I do less pure Kanban and more uh, using the on the Scrum implementations and things like that. But the whip limit's essential because that really sets up. Uh, teamwork. The idea being that some people say you want to have a whip limit of one per person or even one less. I like to go with like half the size of the team because the idea is that you want people to swarm the problem. So if you can only have three things in progress and you have six people on your team, that means by definition everybody is pairing up on that thing. Yeah. And sometimes that's great because that forces you to work together almost pair programming style. Other times people are like, okay, I'm going to snap if I don't get to touch another card because I can't possibly do anything else. And then you're like, okay, maybe we'll ease off a little bit to keep people sane and mm -hmm. you know keep people from injuring each other. But yeah, I mean, the whole point of the whip limit is to make sure that you never have stuff going stale. It's always instantly moving from one point to another. And if not, you have people there who can just attack the problem. Does anybody else, I guess, um, use the Kanban board for before development? What's called a full life cycle Kanban board. Yeah. Yeah. Meaning that we do it for design. We don't let it, we don't usually put, some people will write cards or stories about writing cards and stories, and that's where we tend to <laughs> say, you know, <laughs> no thank you. Yeah, actually, in the 90s when I was at the railroad, we were using Kanban back then, and we did, we have a big board of all of the ideas, and then um, as they're same thing you're doing with your scrub now as they go through them and they're grooming and they determine who's going to be doing the design. And that's why I was asking the question is I thought you were pulling them, the designer was pulling them and putting them in the whip and I'm going, well, why? I didn't understand why that was happening. So I misunderstood what you were saying. Yeah. Okay, so time has expired, so we'll vote. So shall we continue to discuss the wonderful metric of flow efficiency or shall we move on? One, two, three, vote. I just want to say Mihail Cheeks and Mihail you one more time just because come on I had to practice that ah. name. Wow, that was cool. So five minutes on flow efficiency, a great metric to determine maybe if you do need to change your board design. So if you and we'll put some links in the show notes about flow efficiency if you want to go learn more. So okay Joe, you picked that one, so nominate someone to pick another one. Oh, spin the pen. Dude. Rob is up. Rob is going to pick a topic from our pile here of funness. Right. That is a non-movable speakerphone jack. Okay. Copy that. All right, so Rob, I'm looking. How to deal with a team that is not motivated. Oh, <laughs> how to deal with the team. Okay, great topic. Okay. Can't, those so, endorphins are awesome. I can also drop this and that. So whose topic is this? I, I apologize. Okay, so Craig is going <laughs> to, Craig will get it started. So Craig, tell us about it. Um, so uh, I am consulting at a company recently, and there is one team that's just not very motivated. And um, to pull in one of these other cards here, the retrospectives don't seem to make much progress. Mm -hmm. And they, uh, the t 
team lead asked me to offer some suggestions, and so I'm looking for more suggestions. So I actually ended up asking a lot more questions than you know providing answers, but yes. Are they not motivated to do work or not motivated to participate in a process? Yes. <laughs> so it'd be yes and yes. Yes. Okay. Is the end goal too broad and therefore they're they they don't have no view and therefore can't focus on something? I I think that they you know, they're 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 not interested in I mean, they're, they're cogs in this big system, and they don't see the importance of what they're doing. Um, we've talked before about uh, things that motivate, um, so there's autonomy, mastery, and purpose, and I, and I don't think they have any autonomy. We're not as agile as we say we are. They don't have a purpose, and they don't, if, it, it's sort of a vicious cycle. If you stop caring, you're not gonna, you're not gonna, you know, master anything, because not working on anything. By the way, your reference to Daniel Pink's speech? Yes. Speech? Yeah. 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 Just for anybody who's listening. Good yeah. speech, TED Talk, go check it out. Or a book. book. Or a book, too. You know, it seems to me you, you hit the, you hit the nail on the head when you said you had more questions than answers. Yeah. Because the first thing we started doing here was asking questions. So for me, it would seem logically that you would need to ask the questions to get to the root cause of why they're that way. And then it can give you some idea as to how how to approach it. So has anybody sat with the team and literally just come out and ask the team what's keeping you from doing this or what's keeping so, you from doing So I that? am scheduled to facilitate one of their retrospectives. And so that's one of the things that I'm going to see. Their retrospective facilitator has been someone, the, the team lead. So that's sort of a problem. Um, it is they're not been using anonymous note Mm-hmm. Pad cards, I'm like that's a problem. So yeah. I'm like, so Jason's been talking a lot about inviting people to to try practices. I, I think what I want to do is um, show them that they can make an impact on their own happiness and their jobs and actually improve things that they want to improve. And that, that's where I'm headed so far. But yeah, I mean for that for the Daniel Pink stuff to work, I mean that's, I mean his stuff is geared. Uh, primarily towards creatives, um, so I'm, I'm assuming they're like a development team, right? Yes. Okay. I don't agree. I think Dan Pink stuff is geared toward everybody. So it's internal motivation. How do we uh, externally motivate well, people internally? Well, so it's a, it, you go first. Rock We'll say Rock So I uh, wanted to say that um, uh, Rackspace Chairman Graham Weston uh, several years ago said that most employees want to be a valued member on a winning team with an inspiring mission. Mm-hmm. And Rackspace's culture is. Uh, extreme customer service, fanatical support to their customers. So their employees have to be engaged. So I guess the question would be, how is the organization answering those three aspects of that question? Valued member of a winning team with an inspiring mission. Jack Zaldex says the same thing. He's a prof over at WashU. He says, yeah, teams need three things. They need a vision, they need tools, and then they need you to get the heck out of the way. So the vision is really the key part of anything. They have to have something that inspires them. Yeah, that's actually the first thing I want to say like from an agile assessment perspective is to say, like, does the team have a clear understanding of the vision? So is, is there a product owner and 
This is where you can say is the product owner doing their job to make sure the team understands the vision. Nope. So then, okay, so then here, here's what I'll gift you, Craig. Here's what you do in the retro that people might have fun is like literally have people do the post-it vision. So, okay, everyone write down what you think the vision is on a post-it. You know, what are we trying to get done here? And then let's, let's all share them and guess what? They're all gonna be different. And then, you know, you can say product owner, um, what do we do about this? This yeah. is not good. And here's 80 Agile books that say it's not good and all the reasons mm -hmm. why. So go do something about it. Yeah, and check to see the percentage of people who say our vision is to get all of our scope done on time and on yeah. budget. Or I bet you'll get this. You'll get the, the infamous, yeah. I, I have yeah. no idea what the vision is. They'll put a question mark on the post-it note. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I talked to a team once and it blew my mind. They literally work for a company that cures cancer. And said, our teams aren't motivated. And I was like, what? And they're like, yeah, they don't see the perfect, the value behind our product. And I was like, are you kidding me? We're curing cancer. I was like, I can do this in five seconds. Okay, the timer's gone up, but this one's rocking. I know there's a few minutes, but we're going to continue this one, so we'll keep the fuck in. So. What if they did that posted thing, but then they like gave it to their, they like randomly switched them, and the person who got had to try to guess what they why they wrote the vision Ooh, the way that one. it is. Yeah, there's a game around that. Yeah, there's, I mean, what I'd just do is say, I put dollar size, so like, we just want to make money yeah. for no purpose, you know? So, so there's the, the team vision and, and sort of the why are you working here question, which is sort of personal vision. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But to me, it's a very powerful thing in retrospective to say, let's all try to write, do something to express the vision on a post-it note. And then literally, it, to me, it's a silent activity. I wouldn't have people explain it, just put them up there. And now let's go silently look at them and see what emerges. And if anything, as a facilitator, your objective would be to do nothing. Invite the people on the team to say, what do you think about this? And be careful, protect your product owner in that. Don't make it a finger pointing, beat up the product owner thing, just because they may not have conveyed it appropriately. You don't want to let loose the dogs. We have a problem that our product owners typically don't show up to things. So um, point your finger at So them you have that Lego thing where the product owner's sitting in his office? Oh yes, I was having fun with John Sextra this week at a workshop where people built a product owner in their office, and we talked about it. And actually, that group was, it was fine. So, but as you know, John doesn't like product owners in offices, and and he knows I sit in one sometimes when I'm pro when I play product owner. So, um, yeah. But yeah, the key thing is, it sounds like if there is some dysfunction, that's where maybe you, you're for you, Craig, your chance to be an advocate for the team to really go to the sponsor of the team and say. This is data that demonstrates there's a problem in the system. So Scrum, Kanban, Agile, it's a system, and it has defined roles that do things, and if something is just not working, then really that is a leadership issue to say we need to do something about it. So Joe, I think your point's very well taken, that you don't want to you know, offend the product owner, but at the same time, we do need to confront that the product owner, if the team doesn't understand the vision, mm -hmm. Product owners is not being effective. Oh yeah, you don't want to sweep it under the rug. You right. just don't want to turn it into beat them with sticks situation. It's, hey, oh, they don't understand it. Hey, product owner, would you like to take a minute? Oh, you need a minute to prepare the vision. Yeah. That's fine. So one, one of my definitions of agile is facing reality. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, it's facing reality, but then somebody else called the retro. What was it that Julie called it? In the looking back in anger. Yeah, looking yeah. back in <laughs> anger. Yeah. Yeah, you got to be careful. Or a gripe fest after we had a yeah, guy that come in here. Let's have a gripe fest today. Because they do turn into a Another way I thought of approaching this in terms of if you're looking to get action out of a, you know, out of a retro and try to find some kind of experiment to improve and you're trying to find a baseline, I 
without any real proof of it equate uh, happiness with motivation and worked on a worked on a team for six months that collected a happiness metric on all of our all of our stories up top and then we <laughs> there it is and then we and then we could graph them against feature and we could graph them against uh, against iteration and we'd say oh yeah that iteration sucked because we had and, and we had and we had story sizes so bigger stories made us unhappy <laughs> uh, but collecting collecting a happiness metric as as a baseline to to start with and then move from and it actually is another thing to talk about then at the next retro so but you're talking about like a happiness about like how happy you were with the completion of this story there was no there, there was no yeah how high are you I've taken two metrics on one team and, and I took them the whole time one is how well do you think this team is functioning? Ten is I couldn't imagine team functioning more perfectly. Zero is this team is the worst team I could possibly imagine. The it other one is, is how happy teams. are you mainly with your job? Zero is I should have quit yesterday, and ten is I can't imagine a better job. And so graphing both, and they tend to correlate pretty strongly. You know, if the team's doing well, you're going to be pretty happy. If you're happy, the team's going to be doing better. We didn't put we didn't put any restriction on the happiness metric. We gathered it. We we gathered it when when the story was when the story was moved into a certain state. But it wasn't it wasn't restricted to be about the story. It was just. How happy are you with this? Yeah. So with How a, happy at the story level? Yeah. So you said yeah. with this. Oh wow. So. Yeah. Yeah. Why well, do it like, like for the week? No. Yeah. We used it. Level. We we used our we used our tool and we made it a field on our card. Wow. You know that that experiment like that. Remember the story helper? Yeah. Thing? We had the yeah yeah. Was the story it was was the story clear? So hmm. as they pulled the story, they denoted. Just yes or no. Did I have to ask questions? Yeah. Another one I've heard is uh, change the screensaver or background. So when you go to lunch, set your screen, your background either green or red. Green being I'm happy, red being I'm not. And then when everybody know. leaves for lunch, just walk through and see what everybody's screen is. I, I, I've, I've seen that on a board, like a yeah. happy face, smiley face. Or people I know sometimes, actually I know some people that do it in Link, like um, the Microsoft chat product, or also in Slack. Like ways that you you do it there. Jessica Kerr had a an article where she talked about you would actually do it in real time in Slack with uh, one sort of icon or word or another. And the problem with doing it at the end of the week is you you usually peg it to your happiness right now instead of over across right. the whole week. So yeah. they actually counted to took metrics of how many happies and sads were in Slack over the week. Yeah. Alright, well, it's not running for a while back, so um, uh, you want to keep going or move on? Alright, we've had enough of that one, so let's see how we're doing. Maybe we do, maybe do one or two more. So, um, uh, who picked that one? Rob picked that one, right? Uh, so, we got a few left to pick from. Um, so, which nominate someone, Rob, to uh, Debbie. You're Debbie's right. right in front. So, Debbie, we have a few things left in the, uh, the hopper of ideas here on This Agile Life, as we're following the path on This Agile Life. Now, I saw who took this in, but I have a particular reason for picking this one. Automating infrastructure deployments. Ooh, very DevOpsy. And I did that. I'm picking it okay. because it, it, it does impact uh, your ability to automate your to do your automated testing. Where do I go with this stuff? What are our environments we're building in? So the environments really seem to impact agile teams. So you can tell us why you so, okay. I wrote it down because I actually gave a talk on it. 
um, a couple of local user groups and the uh, Madison Ruby. Uh, and so basically, now that we have virtual machines, we shouldn't have Snowflake servers. And the Snowflake server is basically every server is different. So when you're manually configuring servers and you have to go touch each one, you're going to make mistakes and every server is going to be a little bit different. So we're trying to get rid of that problem. You end up with brittle servers and to the point where no one wants to touch them because they're afraid they're going to break them. So one of the questions I asked, who has a server they're afraid to touch for fear that they're going to break them? And the other question is, who thinks they can rebuild their infrastructure or all their servers in 10 minutes? <laughs> oh, never. <laughs> never. Right. So that's the goal. Not only we have virtual machines, you should be able to spin up a server with automated configuration in a couple minutes. Our organizer Hi, of our user group just left, so. So, questions? Or what do we want to talk about? Well, I would just say do that. Yeah. <laughs> it's the, I, I will share, there's a funny story that a few people probably know about. Chris and I were around a team this year where actually I pulled the card off of the board where we actually had a developer who, who was working a card that said, as a developer, I need to set up the internal private cloud environment so we can test our software, which is a card that really you should not be doing as a developer because, or if you're doing it, you should do it once and set up your you know, your internal private cloud test environment so it's standardized and you never have to do it again. So when you have, when you say you shouldn't have to do it, if it doesn't exist, wouldn't you want to do that as a technical debt then? I would say that you are going to use some type of a container to set up that environment. So don't just go and get a VM and configure it, you know, your runtime and put your app on it. You know, do that in a manner where you use a you know a container like a, I don't know if you chef or chef or Docker or something okay. where I configure that and then that basically is like a it's like a template so I can say I want to provision fifteen of those and the 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 container is going to ensure they're all the same um, from ITIL that's called positive configuration control and it means you're maintaining positive control over all your environments to keep them in sync. And really what you should do then is it is a discipline to say that any changes you need to make to that environment, you don't, well, you maybe want to hack them or spike them out on the node itself, but then you want to figure out whatever you need to do to either put that into your build so it's it's deployed, or maybe it goes into, into the container, into the container's base configuration. And I think that there's probably, because we could have a technical conversation about what goes in the deployment piece and then what goes in the container, but that's kind of, so that would be a good conference talk, right? <laughs> we should collaborate um, on this. So, so you get to a point where you actually put your configuration of your servers, the operating system, and the apps that are on it into config files mm -hmm. and include that in your repository for your, your application. Okay, and so now you can version you can version and get back to the previous version of your configuration. Okay, maybe it's my ignorance speaking, but that was going to be my question: is why couldn't you do that? Because again, I'm going to go back to when I was at the railroad. We actually did an upgrade from when we went from the 3.1 to the NT, and we had to go around and touch all of these workstations for 1,200 users in just in one particular department, and that was the call center. So what we did was we hired a company to come in and actually put the removable drive in from the front, and then we. We took the drives. I had the team that actually uh, owned the team that would go out. We would take these drives, and I'm going to date myself here, and used Ghost. 
where we actually duplicated all the drives with the operating system, the applications that we needed, and when we sent these folks, because going from 3.1 to NT was a big change in how people operated with their screens and what they were used to seeing. So we sent them to class to learn how to, to navigate 3NT, and when they came back to their desk, we had had our team go through, pull out the old hard drive, and put in the new one. But what I'm saying is we actually used Ghost, and we made sure that everything, all the operating systems and all of the applications that they needed by that department was there, because we actually did some pre-work that went out and said, what do you need, what are you using? I want to work for the railroads now. If they were that advanced back then, well, they used to call us. They used to call so our department bleeding edge technology. Well, well, on that note, so here's here's a challenge. Here's a challenge for our listeners. There's an old. There's a one of the. I think it was a XP practice. It was called the 10 minute build, and it would be. It meant that you could build and deploy your software and test it in 10 minutes or less. I would like to propose that that has now evolved because really of the DevOps community to say that now what your 10 minute build should be is you build your software, you test your software, and then you provision from nothing a runtime environment that will run your software and then you deploy your software to that runtime environment. So your build should be inclusive of provisioning a container, basically that's brand new every time, and that ideally if you want to test, is probably going to be hydrated with test data. And you need to be able to do that in 10 minutes or less. Uh, so virtual machines help, help, help us a lot there. Help a lot, but I mean, the, the, really it's the container piece, because you can have a VM, and VMs can all get out of sync. And so. <laughs> Anyways, well, the timer did go off. We could probably do a, a, like a lightning wrap because we do have to kind of wrap things up. We are at a, we are at a host of a venue here. We actually are meeting face-to-face -face tonight for this episode of This Agile Life. So how do you guys want to wrap it up? want to do a, one more of these? Or you want to like do a, a takeaway for everyone around the table? Who wants to do one more topic? Okay, and then who wants to do a takeaway? Okay, guess what? One more topic, one. So we'll do one more topic, then we're just going to probably shut it down real quick. So uh, who would like to pick the last topic? Any volunteers? Let's go volunteer this time. Craig's looking at them. Craig, you pick a topic. Team's struggling a little bit on integrating code reviews into process. Okay, so code reviews and process. Last topic, five minutes. Yes. Jim's getting us started. Go. Yes. So, um, so our team, you know, recently introduced um, the use of code reviews, and I think um, we talked about well, okay, what specific purpose do we do we want for these? But um, we had maybe a little trouble deviating that because I mean, people right, what code reviews mean can vary right from from place to place and people bring that baggage along with them and or their own you know personal desires about when they look at someone else's code and they they want to <laughs> fix up certain things um, so I'm not sure where I'm going with this was uh, your team <laughs> knowing, knowing you know, a little how, how knowing a little bit about it was your where where in your process has your team tried to integrate your code review um, it is a step after, you know, what would have been a step between what was, um, you know, the story is the development is complete and moving into the QA validation. Okay. So. Which does not, for your team, include a branch merge. Correct. Because this team... This team operates on what they call a stable master, where they are they are constantly checking into checking into master. So there is no 
there is no merge point where okay the story branch is done and it's ready to be reviewed and merged to set some context okay so that, that's almost a prerequisite though right yeah so just digging a little deeper here so is, is the question you guys, you, you think they should do code reviews and the team isn't? Is the question that the team doesn't know where to put it? Or? Uh, no, uh, the, um, I think the team uh, generally agrees on the value okay. of them. Um, I think we just struggled a little bit with their purpose and keeping, perhaps keeping the focus of the code review. You know, what's, what's the code review supposed to do? How do we keep it from becoming too much, you know, becoming like two more, uh, you know, a few more people totally, you know, revamp uh, the code just because they uh, Well, I mean, drifting in a Sarbanes-Oxley land, I mean, really the whole point of the code review, according to them, is, hey, you know, the Superman 2 problem. Hey, are we rounding off money and funneling it into a <laughs> bank account? Like that. It's really the whole reason it's there. It's like, it's not like Sarbanes actually says, yes, you must do this particular code practice. Pascal Casey, you're fired. You know? <laughs> so, so there is a danger of that's not how I would do it. Let's redo it. The, try not to fall into that trap. You know, as long as it meets the goals, don't you don't need to rewrite it. Yeah, and I mean it's maintainable. It's hey, if, if somebody's doing something really odd, like I know when uh, Brian Button he was here earlier. He tried to get us all to one-line methods. <laughs> and if he was doing your code review, it was like, three lines, too long. No kidding. Jim, do you have documented either working agreements or done criteria for your code reviews? Uh, yes, we do. Good. Okay, because I see a lot of teams that Jay try to do code review, and it's like, what is this mysterious thing called code review? I do it one way, Melanie does it another way, Chris does it another way, and is, it's and, it is, is no it followed? And is it um, agreed upon? Well, I think, I mean, when, when it was very new, and, and I will admit to being, you know, one of the guilty parties here, it was, it was, you know, I kind of shifted into my old habit of what were code reviews like at my previous, you know, employer, or, or what did I personally, personally feel they should be, and then kind of had to be reminded that, oh, no, we're really focusing on. So if I showed up tomorrow, could I, could I see your criteria for code reviews for your team? Would they be somewhere transparent? I, I, I can show you, yes, a po at the very least, I can show you a post-it. Yeah, you see, yeah. so, wow. Okay, hold on. <laughs> So I've recommended a checklist um, of, of things to look for. Now, on the other hand, I recommend not focusing on the style details. Because what happens is you focus on the style, hey, you know, you did, you did it wrong, although that one I would really it, I mean, we're, we're, the team's actually pretty good. Pretty good at that. That, that so, was clear so up front that that's Try not to focus on the small things. Focus on the bigger issues. Like, is it maintainable? What's the yeah. best thing I've ever heard actually? Yeah, it, it, it kind of going from that, it's, hey, set goals for your code review. You guys agree to your things, but it's like, why, ask your team, why are we doing this in the first place? Is it because somebody, we've got a brand new person on the team and we want to make sure that they, who's never written commercial style code? You're like, okay, well, then we've got to get them up and running. Or is it just because you guys all want to make sure that you know nobody's going out and just including open source libraries just because they can, stuff like that. I mean, there's all sorts of stuff. 
or is it because we feel we're not pair switching enough, and so we we have to in, uh, introduce oh, introduce yeah. code review to as a way to recover the code? Okay, time out, time out. And with hearing, and this just now comes up. And with that, guess what, guys? We are gonna practice scrum tonight because we are done. So we actually need to leave. So we're actually gonna turn off, and we thank everyone for listening and uh, listen to this. We'll probably put a wrap on this. Uh, so, but thank you to our participants tonight here at St. Louis Agile Link for participating in this Agile Life. And um, thanks, guys. Round of applause. And at that point, we had to cut the podcast since the cleaning crew was coming in to clean the room that we were using to record. So unfortunately, we didn't have time to get pics from everyone, but I did want to take one moment to uh, thank everyone who joined us at the August 2015 St. Louis Agile Link meeting and participated in our podcast session. So one more time, thanks for Melanie, Tony, Rob, Chris, Joe, Jim, Debbie, and of course, a big thanks goes out to my to my fellow co-host, Craig Buchek, who was also there to, at the 2015 St. Louis Agile Link meeting. And now it's time for everyone's favorite part of the podcast, this week's Hottest Picks. This week's Hottest Picks. So since I'm here left all by myself, I thought I would give you guys two real quick picks just to check out if you have a moment. First and foremost, I did want to pick the uh, St. Louis Agile Link user group. That's our uh, it's our large uh, Agile user group here in the St. Louis, Missouri area. And as uh, as you guys heard, we just did a podcast at the at the meeting they had back in August. So if you happen to be in St. Louis or you're around the Midwest, you might want to check out a future a future St. Louis Agile Link meeting. We'll put a link to where you can find out more information about the group in the show notes. And they um they use a LinkedIn community, so you'll have to join that community. We'll we'll put the link um in we'll put the link to LinkedIn in the show notes so you can check that out. Last but not least, just something for fun. Um, I was recently on a flight back to St. Louis from LA and there was a Tom Cruise impersonator sitting next to me. So we had some fun with Twitter. His name was Evan Ferrante and he was actually coming to St. Louis to do a a movie. But nonetheless, uh, he has a YouTube channel that's just a bunch of Tom Cruise funny stuff that he's put together and um, it was a fun flight. We talked pretty much the whole way back and uh, shared a bunch of stories and if you saw my post on Twitter, no kidding, he actually has a big data idea for some stuff about film. So a cool guy, a really smart guy, and hopefully his activities in St. Louis went well. But check out his YouTube channel. He's just got a bunch of funny stuff on there. So, but guess what, everybody? That's all the time. That's all the time we have today. So we want to thank you for listening. If you have any comments, feel free to look us up on Twitter, or you can look us up on the web at www.thisagilelife.com. And um, of course, that's about it. So thanks for listening, and keep living this agile life. This Agile Life is brought to you by a community of agile developers and coaches aspiring to spread the word about this groundbreaking approach to software development. Join us at thisagilelife.com forward slash community.